couldn't take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ampler. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently, this deserves a goal, and he's got it, what a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi brilliant, what a goal this will be, magic! Can't break free of the tackle, and Rook rolls it along the line, oh. that is amazing! Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. Ooh, and again there's a turnover, and Edwards, the little genius, drives it home. It's the Cats Whiskers. Hello, it's great to have you joining us on the Cats Whiskers. I'm Wes Cussworth. This week, we're privileged to have former Geelong captain and two-time Kaji Greaves medalist, Bruce Nankervis. It's fabulous to have you listening, whether you're hearing us through any of a number of podcasting platforms or on Sport FM in Perth. Megan Holtz will soon take us through Bruce's impressive football resume, but not before we hear from this week's panel. And hello, Megan. They say that a week's a long time in football, and that seems most applicable to the Cats' finals form. Hi, Wes. Well, wasn't it an absolutely delightful turnaround in form, one that I did not expect whatsoever? Uh, We absolutely dominated every statistic, I think, possible, and it was just wonderful to watch. It was... um, yeah, it was just a real surprise. And my friend Mark Brunger actually said at one point during the match that he was speechless, which doesn't happen too often. Too often. And I was myself as well. So um, absolutely delightful to see. And we certainly needed to do that. Well, the really speechless Mark Brunger joins us also. Had the Pies played their final a week earlier in toppling the West Coast Eagles? Or is Geelong the real deal in 2020? Well, good evening, Wes. Good evening, uh, listeners, and good evening, panel. That's a, a question best answered in 2020 hindsight. I think if you had have asked me that on um, on Friday, I would have said that no, Collingwood haven't run their race. But uh, after the final siren on Saturday night, that was certainly the case. So I think they may have played their grand final a week before, but that takes nothing away from Geelong. Geelong played great football. The first five to seven minutes were a bit... bit um, uh, a bit uh, competitive and you didn't quite know which way the game was going to swing. But uh, in the remainder of that first quarter, Geelong really set up the tone for the game. And I really think now that they could, they can definitely go on with it and uh, find their way into the uh, to the grand final. Um, I will say this, the speechless Mark Brunger uh, wasn't really hungry before the, uh, the match. And so he thought he'll just sit down on the couch and, watch the first quarter and then maybe have something to, to eat after that. Well, after the first quarter's performance, I can tell you right now that Mark Brunger did not move one <laughs> iota from the couch for the remainder of the game. I did not go to the bathroom. I did not get up for a coffee. I did not get up for a drink. 
I sat there and did not move. That's what you do. You soak it in when it happens. Uh, we welcome Gus Marini and it feels like Groundhog Day when I ask you once again to change or not to change, heading into a cutthroat clash with the Brisbane Lions. Hello, Wes. Hello, listeners. Hello, panel. Um, to change or not to change, I think I'm going to stick with the same theory I had last week. Um, I, I, don't th- I can't see how they can possibly drop anybody from this side. I, I can't see any sort of match-up to the naked eye, which you'd need to bring someone else in. But I do stand by, retrospectively, um, Tom Atkins is a very, very stiff fellow because, you know, if Tom Atkins is in that side and Sam Simpson played a really good game, but if, if you just had swapped him, there's no way Geelong was losing that game anyway. A bit like the 2007 grand final, retrospectively, they played Stephen King, dropped Mark Blake at the very last moment. And we know retrospectively it didn't make a difference. But in saying that, Sam Simpson was was very good. And I think um, they had a bob each way with both Anthony Petkovic's theory and mine in that I didn't want to change too much. And Anthony thought we did need a change. And I think it was, look, you know, winning, it's a winning formula. Barring injury, they've got to go with the same with the same twenty-two. And welcome also to Anthony Pekovic. Does history count for anything on Saturday when it comes to Geelong and preliminary finals? Well, where's those who refuse to learn from history are doomed to fail. Geelong, in fact, are the preliminary final specialists. This will be Geelong's eighteenth prelim in the last forty years. That's right. Since nineteen eighty, we have appeared in almost one in every two preliminary finals. We've won eight of the 17 played in that time, and Saturday night gives us a chance to square the ledger. Worryingly, though, we have lost our last four under Chris Scott in 2013, 16, 17, and again last year. Many in the Geelong camp say this is a different side. To that I say, boulder dash. Six current players were in the 2013 loss. No fewer than 12 of the team set to play this weekend have played in the last three losses together. Another three have joined those 12 in the last two prelim losses. In fact, Sam Simpson is the only player in the team not to have played in a prelim with his teammates before. Even I know it takes more than a change of underwear to say I'm wearing a new outfit. Let's just own it. This is a chance to write a new chapter in our history. Beat Brisbane on Saturday night and get the monkey off our backs before it becomes a giant gorilla. Very comprehensive, as always, Anthony. Thank you so much. As mentioned, coming up, it is former Geelong champ of the 70s and 80s, Bruce Nankervis. Two years younger than his brother, Ian, Bruce Nankervis gave sterling service to the Cats for well over a decade, clocking up 253 games. Along with Ian, Bruce was recruited from Geelong League club, Barwon, breaking into the Cats' senior side midway through 1970. Bruce's career really took off in 1973 when coach Graham Polly Farmer released him into an on-ball role. Determined, tenacious and persistent, Bruce developed into a highly effective nullifier of opposing team star players. He won back-to-back Best and Fairest awards in 1973 and 4 and was club captain for two years from 1976. He also wore the Big V a total of 12 times the same number as brother Ian. Bruce retired at the end of the 1983 season after contributing significantly to the excitement at Kidinia Park over a 14-year career. Bruce, welcome to the Cats Whiskers. We are so pleased to have you with us for our podcast. Thank you very much. Yes, interesting just listening to you talk there. It um, brings back a few memories. 
No doubt it does. Well, looking back at your career, is there a moment which brings you the most pleasure when you think back? Oh, that's a good question. Pleasure. I would think probably in 1980 when we um, we actually went through the season and Geelong was basically the best side in the competition. We ended up on top of the ladder and then we played the finals thinking that, you know, it'd be a very good chance of making the grand final in that year. But it never happened. You know, we played in a preliminary final that year and got beaten. Uh, I think there was, I think it was probably about three or four points against Collingwood. And that was the end of the season. But um, to make, you know, end up on top of the ladder for that year and to know, you know, we had a very good side was, was very satisfying. Bruce, uh, actually, that, uh, that preliminary final, I think a, a very, very young uh, Mark Brunger might have had some dust in his eye that day, I think, at the fortunes of the Cats going down. But you, uh, you followed your brother uh, to Kidinia Park from, from uh, your club at Barwon. Took you a little bit of time to to break into the into the team at Geelong. How important was Ian during that time in in sort of giving you the encouragement and the tips and what what he thought you needed to do to to stake a claim for an ongoing spot on the list there at Geelong? Yeah, that's inter- interesting question because Ian himself had a bit of a difficulty in getting into the senior side. He played uh, a number of reserves game and um, didn't quite make it and then eventually he did um so he he basically gave me the confidence that keeps sticking at it and if it doesn't go your way um i can remember you know i started with the under 19s there was a guy frank pike he was the coach and um i played down there and then um played well enough to end up playing a few games in the reserves and um, had my opportunity then. It didn't quite work out in the earlier stages, but um, as I say, you know, probably later on when Polly Farmer came to the club, he gave me an opportunity to play in a num- another position than what I was playing in, and um, it gave me a great opportunity to learn one about the game and um, give you the confidence that you needed to continue on and um, have a have a long career. Bruce, when we reflect back and look at our football cards back in the 70s and 80s and we speak to fellow Geelong supporters of our era and we ask them to name their best side, invariably your name comes up. But there's two schools of thought, either as a halfback flanker or as a ruck rover. Where do you believe you played your best football and where do you believe you played more of your footy? Uh, yeah, that's, as I say, when, um, when Polly came to the club as coach, um, he played me off the half-back flank, which was totally different to where I was playing before. Um, and then I got an opportunity to play on the ball as a ruck rover. So I suppose as a ruck rover, it gave you an opportunity to play against some very good players and they actually taught you. I can remember a guy called Neville Fields. He played with Essendon. I think my first game as an on-baller, I played on, on Neville. And he taught me a lot about the game, how to run to the right positions, be in the right position at the right time. So, yeah, I'd say probably as a ruck rover, but I certainly enjoyed the times as a halfback flanker because, you know, we had guys like Gary Malarkey, my brother Ian, um, Jack Hawkins. You know, we kind of set up a reasonable side from the back line um, and uh, an opportunity was still, we all still catch up together and um, and feel that 
particular time as a, a backline, it was very important. Bruce, you came into the captaincy um, at the start of the 1976 season. Um, how did that come about? Because there was uh, lots happening at the club at that time. Polly Farmer stepped down. Rod Olsen came on board. I think John Newman, who was the captain, uh, was in some sort of a dispute with the club. It was an unsettled time, but you led the team to finals in your first season as captain. Yes, yes, we did. Um, yeah, what happened off John Newman, he had a um, disagreement with the football club. Uh, I think he wanted to go, it might have been Richmond, if I remember. And um, and obviously that was happening over the pre-season and uh, we were still training and I don't think John... Uh, John Newman was there at training. He was um, standing out and just got to a stage where, you know, he, he wasn't he wasn't down at the club. Um, so they decided that they would appoint another captain and I was lucky enough to uh, be appointed captain under Rod Olsen. Um, then John Newman eventually came back and he played with us and, uh, you know, played over 300 games with the club. So, um, yeah, that's how it all eventuated. Under Rod... Yeah, the first year we played finals. The second year we might have as well. Um, then I, um, in the game of football, ended up uh, breaking my neck. And um, I missed, I think, the last probably 10 or 12 games. And um, at that particular time, I was wondering, well, you know, will I, from the injury, will it heal and things like that? I was told that it would, and it, which it did. Uh, but then I decided that, um, you know, I'd concentrate on trying to get back into the side and getting myself fit. And um, then Ian, my brother, he was appointed captain um, of the football club in that particular year. That injury was um, in one of those night matches at Waverley the, in the, the <laughs> midweek games. That's my recollection. Is that right? Yeah, very true. Yes, it was. It was a, a night game. Uh, we were playing Hawthorne. And um, the ball actually, it was a very cold and wet night, which most Tuesdays nights were at Waverley. Ended up, it was in the last quarter where I was jumped into from behind. And um, because it was so cold, you couldn't really feel if you had uh, feeling in your hands or not. And uh, I can remember uh, one of the trainers from the footy club ran out and said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I think so. Um, anyway, eventually I came off and um, then, uh, as I say, ended up uh, having a, a brace on my neck for a number of weeks. And um, I, I remember at the end of that year, uh, we ended up going up to Darwin and we played Hawthorne up there. And I went up with the side and um, uh, they're a bit short of players. So I said, oh, look, I'll play. So I played that game and did okay. So then I realised that, you know, my neck was going to be fine, but uh, you didn't know. Bruce, you spoke about Polly Farmer and our podcast listeners over in Perth through Sport FM have great fondness for Polly. Always love to hear stories about Polly. And I'm really interested for you to tell us a little bit more about his methods because clearly he was quite different to the other coaches that you had no doubt experienced beforehand and also after that event? Yeah, I remember when he first came to the club, uh, we had a meeting, a team meeting with all the players and he got up and spoke and he said, how many of you players have a football? 
I think at that stage would have been probably only uh, probably a third of the players had a football. And he said, look, if you were playing golf, uh, you'd take your set of golf sticks around with you and you'd be putting the ball and doing this and doing that. He said, by the time we meet up next week, when we're going to start training, I want everybody to have a football. And he said, either you, um, you buy one, you um, get one from the football club or whatever, but everybody to have a football. And th that was his idea because he was a person that was self-made, self-motivated person. And he did that because everywhere he'd go, he'd have a football in his car. I remember this, there's some photographs in the, might have been the advertiser, where he worked at, a, at, at his tyre place and he had a football there and he'd be handballing it through the window and the window was only wound down probably oh, enough room for a football to go through. And he would handball and handball and handball through that window. So, you know, he's a self self-made, self-motivated person, as I said. Yeah, and he, um, yeah, he was a, a very good coach. His ideas on football were well and truly before um, that particular time. You know, his idea was he wanted us to outnumber the opposition in the back line um, and then bring the ball forward as a group. You know, so we had guys who were playing on the wing who would be, end up in the back line to get the ball out and then kick it down in the forward line. But it probably failed a little bit when, you know, we took it down the forward line and there wasn't a lot of players there because the wingmen had pushed up and the half-forward flankers had pushed up as well. But his ideas, they were, you know, very important. And as, as you know, today's football is played like that. You know, they outnumber the opposition in the back line and bring the ball forward and... Um, but yeah, he is a um, he's a great guy, Polly. I can remember we went over to Perth and we caught up with him and um, my wife and I, and um, and we said, I said, Polly, I said, on the way in they had, I don't know if you've been to Perth, but they have a freeway named uh, Graham Farmer Polly Freeway, and um, I said to him, I said, Polly, I said. You've named the freeway after you. That that must be absolutely fantastic, you know, to have a freeway every time you drive down, you see your name up in the lights. And, and they said, oh, no, not really. And I said, what? Not really? Why not? He said, they never put a toll gate on for me, he said. <laughs> <laughs> that was Paul. Um, but, yeah, he, he um, as I say, he, he gave me an opportunity to play in another, another position. And, um, and, as I say, my football took off and... Um, but he left the club. We didn't have the success that um, he would have liked us to have and we would have liked to have as well. But uh, we certainly learned a lot about about the game with Polly as coach. Um, and as I say, nowadays, the modern-day football is uh, very similar to how he wanted to coach our side is what they do nowadays. The delightful stories, Bruce, when you're talking about Polly, and I'll never tire of that story of him handballing the ball through the car window. It's just such a great story. Um, 12 games for the Big V. What did that mean to you? Do you have a game which stood out most? I mean, it was a great thrill to represent your state uh, because in those days, basically, um, it was Victoria versus Western Australia or South Australia. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the better players got picked in each side. Uh, I can remember we had a 
a carnival at one stage there where it was in Perth and we ended up over there for about a week or so and we played you know two or three games in that one particular week against the other sides and that was a great thrill yeah it's um you know you, you, to represent your club is absolutely fantastic then to represent your state is obviously something different and also a great feeling i've, I've found you know in those games you had great players around you you know guys who you played against um and they were a part of that team and um it actually it, it lift you up i remember one night tommy hafey was coach that was before he he coached us and kevin bartlett we did a bit of training at the mcg you know leading up to some of the um state football and i was running around the mcg and then kevin bartlett he was um basically standing in the one position and um i said to tommy i said oh you know, we get down at Geelong, Rod Olsen, he used to make sure that every time we kicked the ball at training, if we're doing circle work, that you would follow on, continue on for another 10 or 15 minutes to get into the a habit of following on after you kick. But Kevin was completely different and Tommy Hafey said, well, that's exactly how he trains, but um, he certainly performs on a, a weekend. So, yes, the state football, it was um, a great thrill. And um, I can remember one game, we went to Tasmania and we ended up being beaten. And um, and I can remember the umpire, I think, I think it was Don Jolly, he, um, before the game, he actually came up and said, look, during this game, there might be an opportunity where I might have to pay a free kick against you just to even up the game a little bit. Um, so just accept it, don't go mad or anything like that. Anyway, we got beaten in that game, so <laughs> I'm not saying because of the umpire, but um, yeah, it's just a, a game where these things happen. But you know, I really enjoyed state football and the opportunity to play with the best and um, and learn a lot about the game. You're listening to the Cats Whiskers, and this week we're catching up with former Geelong a great from the 70s and 80s in Bruce Nankervis. And Bruce, um, when Megan read out your uh, history and and some of the statistics there at the start they they represent an absolutely fantastic career in its own right I'm just wondering how much better it was for you or how much more enjoyable it was for you to share the highs and lows of that career with your brother in the same team at the same time you know we we had a bit of an understanding which we'd never spoke about it but it just happened in a game of football where you know in the back line uh, we used to kick the ball across the field and it was just you'd get the ball and you look up and there'd be Ian standing on the other side of the field and and it'd go the same with him he um got the ball and I'd maybe on the other side of the field so we'd cross the ball over and in those days it wasn't an accepted thing but it gave us an opportunity to open up the play so we could take it from one side to the other and then hopefully get it into the forward line but yeah it's um just that understanding that we had what wasn't anything that we practiced the same with uh, Gary Malarkey you know Gary was down there in the back line and the same thing you know he'd switch the ball as well. Bruce just on that we spoke to Ian a couple of weeks ago and uh, we brought up the story of Lou Richards dubbing you guys as the Leyland brothers because you know in this day and age it's just smart switching the play so you were very ahead of your time but one other 
Monica, that you, that was attributed to you from a lot of radio journalists was Mr. Consistency in that every time we heard the name Bruce Nancurves as kids growing up, we always heard what followed was he never plays a bad game. In this day and age, coaches just love the players whose golf between their best and worst game is very, very narrow. What did you attribute that to at the time to give you that consistency? As I said, with, um, when Polly was appointed coach, he played me in another a different position. And I, I think, you know, even though when I played junior football down at Barwon, I was always as a half-forward flanker and, and maybe occasionally you might go into the centre. But just think that, you know, it was an opp- opportunity, playing in the back line. You, you played on some very good players and they taught you a lot about the game. So you learned quickly about, especially playing in the back line, you obviously didn't want goals to be kicked on you or anything like that. So you learned very quickly to to play that game and then you got the opportunity to probably do a little bit more running out of the back line, uh, which we did. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's just something that came to your game and you learnt about it and it kind of blossomed from there. And then, as I say, I did play as a a ruck rover and that gave you an opportunity because you'd learned a little bit about the back line um, being a defender to a certain degree as a ruck rover it gave you a bit of a role to to not experiment but it gave you an opportunity to play a little bit looser but yeah it's um, it kind of just progressed it's progressed from um, playing the back line to being an on baller Bruce, the start of your career sort of coincided with the the um, the remnants of the great sides of the sixties. The, the Goggin was still there, Wade, yep. Kenny Newland, um, those sorts of players. And then with you were introduced a new wave of of, of champion players: David Clark, uh, Michael Turner, Robert Neal. Um, who were some of the, the the great characters and players that uh, you remember fondly? in your time with the club? John Newman, obviously, he was a um, he was a character and different. As I say, he played over 300 games. As I say, he, he certainly was a character. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting. All the players you come across and play with, um, guys like Jack Hawkins. You know, Jack was a, a character. He, um, he had that opportunity where he had those long arms. The ball would be kicked down. You think, oh, look, I'll... I'll just stand in front of the pack and um, maybe the ball might come down and uh, or I'll run over the back and the ball might come over the back. And then all of a sudden these long arms would come up from nowhere and they'd be Jack's two arms. He'd mark the ball and that stopped the play. And then, you know, we'd, either myself or my brother would run past and maybe call for the handball on the move. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, they're all characters. Um, Billy Goggin, obviously, he was still at the club when I first started off. Um, I can remember as a coach, you know, he coached us later on as well, and he, he was um, a very strict coach. Um, but as a player, he was he was a character, uh, Bill. he I can remember one particular time after games, sometimes sponsors would come up and maybe um, hand you some money in your hand and... Um, in one game there, Billy played very well and he ended up having a bit of cash in his hand. And um, in the bus on the way back, he, he said to me, he said, oh, look, here's, I can't remember the amount of money now, 
But uh, he said, look, I felt you did very well today and um, here's some cash from um, from today's game. So, yeah, they, look, they're all, all characters, all all great people and, you know, you, you learned so much from them, all had different ideas. Uh, so it gave you an opportunity to learn more about the game and, and learn more about the, the individuals as well. Chris, we know that back in 1970, it was very much the done thing that a promising young footballer in Geelong might rise up through the ranks and don the hoops for the Cats. Obviously, nowadays, it's quite a different situation where you might be drafted and end up in Perth or Queensland or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. What did it mean for you, the fact that you actually did come up through a Geelong League club and got to play not only with your brother, but also for the club that no doubt you'd probably followed like the rest of us? Very important. As a youngster playing down at Barwon, you never really thought that you'd end up playing uh, VFL football uh, with with Geelong, obviously. And it was just an opportunity that I was given. And as I said, Frank Pike, um, who was coaching under-19s, went down there and worked with Frank and uh, the opportunity to, to end up playing senior football. But, yeah, it's... Um, it's very important, especially in those days, playing with a local club and then um, going down to Geelong because I think in those days, you know, a lot of people uh, or players were, I wouldn't say drafters, wasn't the word back then, but ended up playing with Geelong from local clubs. Ian, my brother, was the same. Uh, so, yeah, it, um, obviously coming that way you think well you will play with Geelong but as I say it's something that um, just kind of eventuated and um, had the opportunity and made the most of that opportunity as I say in the early stages when I was down at Geelong I kind of struggled as a player and I remember one particular time I was told that um, I didn't make the senior list so uh, they said, you know, we'll, if we need you, we'll call you up. And um, we were living in Autumn Street in Newtown. And uh, I was going to play with Barwon that particular day. And then the next moment I got a phone call to say that they're short of, short of a player. Um, there'll be a taxi coming to pick me up and it'll take you up to, I think we ended up going to Hawthorne in that particular game. And... Um, you'll fill in with the reserves for that game. So I did a fill-in and then um, did reasonably well. And then the following week, I was the same. I was uh, left out of the side. And then, again, one of the players wasn't available. And so, again, I was uh, went up to play reserves and um, played well again. And then eventually, as I say, I worked my way through and ended up playing senior football at Geelong. But, yeah, it wasn't an easy uh, road to make uh, VFL football, um, but it taught you a lot about um, just persevering. And and I can remember the particular player uh, that didn't play to give me an opportunity to play. He was a he came from Western Australia, and I think he was after more money, or they wanted the club to pay more money, and they weren't going to do that. Um, so that happened a couple of weeks in a row and gave me an opportunity to um, to play and play well enough and then eventually play um, with John Footy Club. Well, your perseverance obviously served you well, Bruce, because you went on to win two BNFs for the club. What did that mean to you? Uh, yes, it meant a lot because, you know, as I say, 
first of all, you weren't expecting to be invited down to Geelong and then to be invited down there and go through the the disappointments that I had earlier. And then, um, as I say, when Polly Farmer came to the club, uh, he played me in another position and gave me an opportunity to play well and then um, to win a best and fairest. It, it was a great opportunity. Um, I was only talking to somebody the other day, and this might sound silly, but we're talking about won best and fairest and he said oh what did you get for when you won the best and fairest and i said um i actually got a rifle and oh. um it's <laughs> <laughs> geelong and you wouldn't believe it. it it sat under the underneath my bed because you know obviously i didn't need a rifle and then they brought in you had to have a license to to have a rifle i thought oh hang on a minute i've got one sitting underneath the bed never been opened and um i gave it to a farmer, as a matter of fact, and uh, he ended up um, getting a license for it. But yeah, it's just uh, one of those things that was somebody was the sponsor of the football club, and um, a rifle was the trophy that you got. That's a terrific story. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it was um, a, a great uh, thrill to to win a best affairs for the John Footy Club. Just mentioned earlier that um, you you were referred to as Mr. Reliable. Uh, Bruce and I was interested to know tonight when, or find out tonight when I was doing a little bit of work ahead of the show that um, you had a really really strong 10 year period there between 73 and, and when you finally retired in 83 you played 193 of a possible 205 games in that period and you mentioned about the neck injury there before but obviously, you had a really, really good run with with injuries and 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 staying away from them. What do you put that down to? Was that training, or was it uh, the way you went about playing the game, or was it just sheer luck? Um, yeah, very good question. I, probably the injuries that I had because I, I broke an arm in a game that was in the early stages. You know, when I was struggling as a player and missed probably seven or eight games from that. And then the other thing was the neck injury. Um, but as I say, that was towards the end of the season. So um, I missed, you know, probably might have been, you know, 10 games, I think. Um, but then on, from then on, I had a pretty good run with injuries. I never never had a hamstring in my life, never had any ankle injuries, never had any um, back. Um, as I say, the neck, obviously, that healed um, from the rest that I had. But, you know, I had a, had a very good run with injuries. I think Ian was basically the same. You know, he, he had a pretty good run with injuries. I think towards the end of his career, he had a couple of knee issues, but they weren't serious knee issues. Um, so we both basically had a pretty good run um, in those later stages of our footy career. You know, you obviously there's games where you played and, um, and you know, obviously you put your body on the line, but yeah, it might be just the breeding. I've never really thought about that. It's just something that, as I say, didn't really have a lot of injuries in the later stages of our career. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, with Ian's body, he, his body was a lot, lot lighter than mine. He was um, didn't carry a lot of uh, what we call muscle tone that, that we had to have. I can remember one stage, um, uh, as I say, one stage you had to be able to lift your body weight on the dumbbells and... Um, and Ian could never do that, um, but he, he, you know, he broke the record of playing the most games at the club. So there was no um, 
you win some, you lose some, don't you? <laughs> That's exactly right. So, you know, I just probably think it was just a um, maybe a family thing where we had a body that uh, didn't um, have too many serious injuries. I know, you know, during your football career, you come against some players who have great ability, but unfortunately um, their football careers are shortened through serious knee injuries. Um but, uh, you know, we, we were very lucky. Bruce, you mentioned earlier in your um, state games when you were representing Victoria, uh, you told a story about Kevin Bartlett. Um, you and Kevin are forever linked in a trivia question. Do you, do you know what I'm referring to? And you can tell our listeners what that's all about? Trivia question. It goes back to uh, Kevin being reported for the first oh, reported, time yes. in, his, yeah. in his career. And his illustrious 403-game... Oh, no, it's a thing that's a bit more than 403, is it? But his 400-game career had been reported once. And who did he belt? Well, that's a very interesting story, that one. He, we, I, I um, had the opportunity to play on Kevin a number of times because um, I, I did have a bit of success against him. But my theory with Kevin was... You know, Kevin would never take an overhead mark um, and he would most of the time um, run over the back of the pack or on, onto the pack and receive the ball and uh, away he'd go. I kind of gave him a bit of room and I ran at him from the other side of the pack and he found that quite difficult. So when we played against each other, he used to get quite frustrated and... Um, and I think he's got a different tale of the story than I have, but um, he, he said to me in one game, he said, look, if you keep doing that, I'm going to hit you. And um, anyway, I kept doing it. Um, I did it another two or three times, and eventually he, um, we had an incident where he hit me and um, ended up, we, he ended up getting reported, and I had to go up to the tribunal, and I had a cut across my eye where... Obviously, that was part of the incident. Um, so we've gone up there and they decided that maybe I shouldn't be a witness because, um, you know, obviously with the injury that I had on the face, it mightn't look as well. So I went up there but didn't go in to give any evidence and anything like that. Then they um, they found him guilty, but he, they, he got off because of his record. He'd never been reported before, which was um, fair enough. Didn't really worry me. That was fine, but... Um, then he ended up, I went up, he wrote a book and I, he invited me up to the opening of the book and there was a bit of media up there and things like that and and one particular media person asked him about that incident about being reported and, uh, and he had a little bit of a different story than what actually happened and um, I found that quite unusual and I, I went up to him after the interview and um, I said, Kevin... I didn't think it happened that way. And he said, no, he says, it's written in the book. That's what happened. So, um, yeah, no, uh, actually, Kevin and I uh, became pretty good friends, you know, met whenever you go to different functions and things like that. And he actually rang me the other day for my birthday and uh, my 70th birthday and he wished me all the best and we had a bit of a discussion. So, yeah, no, it, uh, it happened, but uh, that was just part of the game trying to um, take his concentration from the game. I, the instant where he hit me, I got a free kick. So I ended up with the ball and I was happy about that. <laughs> Chris, your, your last season, 1983, you played every game that year. Um, and you and Ian retired together. Was that coincidental, planned? Um, 
because it, it, it seemed to me that you, you still had a bit of football left in you. Did you did you feel like you just had done enough? Yeah, certainly we never spoke, Ian or I, about retiring. Um, I think in that, my last game, I think I think might have played Richmond, I think. And um, and actually, I played quite well. Um, but it was just one of those things as a... Because um, Bill Goggin finished as coach and Tommy Hafey... Sorry, Tommy coached the year before and I played under Tommy for 12 months and then, then retired. Um, yeah, it's just, I think your body, you know, your body was okay, but mentally, you know, you, I think your mental capacity is very important in any sport or in life in generally. So I found that mentally I was probably drained a little bit more than my body and I just felt that, you know, it's uh, time to, to have a rest. Um, so, yeah, I just decided to retire and Ian was the same. He, um, he basically said the same thing. So, but we, we certainly didn't plan it. It's just one of those things that happened, a bit like our football careers together. You know, we never had any particular plans to do this or do that. They just, it was a family thing, a family feeling. Um, and uh, we kind of played and retired from that. Well, Bruce, as someone who grew up with football in the 70s, um, thank goodness for the Nankervis brothers at Geelong because they were um, a constant throughout my uh, my teenage years and uh, on behalf of us here at the Cats Whiskers we'd like to thank you for a wonderful wonderful career at Geelong as a player as a captain later on you you served the club in other capacities in uh, coaching and uh, certainly you can look back on your career um, with great satisfaction and thank you for joining us here on the Cats Whiskers. Uh, thank you very much it's given me an opportunity to um, reflect and um, think about what happened in all those years ago you your stories and um so they gave me a a, a rem time of remembrance so thank you very much pleasure this week's team talk is finals cameos and what we're looking at this week are players and moments in any type of final vfl afl doesn't have to be a grand final where their name was made by a certain event. So we'll start with the back line. First up, we've got Lewis Roberts Thompson from the Sydney Swans Grand Final in 2005. Barry Breen, who brought delight to the St Kilda Faithful in 1966 in their Grand Final against Collingwood. And Wayne Harms, who just like Barry Breen, broke a lot of Collingwood hearts, but this time for Carlton in the 1979 Grand Final. Anthony Petkovic, Take us through this trio of defenders. Well, Barry Breen uh, made his name as a forward at St Kilda, and uh, he always complains that he played over 300 games for the Saints. He kicked over 500 goals in his career, and he's remembered for one single point, um, the big highlight of his career. And, of course, that point got St Kilda over the line in that famous grand final. Wayne Harms, that spectacular boundary line save that could have been in the third row of the members' stand, um, that sunk Collingwood in 1979, and Lewis Robert Thompson, who was a very much a, a home brand, plain rap sort of a player, played a blinder in the 2005 grand final where he really stood his ground alongside Leo Barry in defence to break the Sydney Premiership drought. 
Thank you, Anthony. And we move to the half back line and we go to the 1977 replay grand final between North Melbourne and Collingwood. And Phil Manassa, well, arguably was one of the greatest moments in grand final history. At centre-half back, well, we've got Lewis Robert Thompson's teammate, Leo Barry. And on the other half-back flank is a player that not many people in this day and age will remember, Ian McMullen, who played for Collingwood, went to Essendon, then went back to Collingwood. So Mark Brunger will tell us a little bit about this half-back line. Yeah, it's a good good half-back line too, Gus. As as you mentioned, uh, Phil Manassa, one of the great runs in in VFL football at the time, uh, ran from the half-back line, had... Oh, was it seven or eight bounces and uh, and uh, put it through the middle on the run? Uh, fantastic goal for his team. They really needed it in that 77 grand final replay and um, just a, a magnificent run, the likes of which we don't see in modern football these days, although uh, our very own Patrick Dangerfield gave us a bit of a glimpse of that uh, a couple of weeks ago um, against uh, Port Adelaide. Leo Barry, well, we all, we all remember that mark in the 2005 grand final at full back. The game was in the balance and Leo Barry just soared above the pack and Stephen Quartermain just yelled out, Leo Barry, you star, because he'd actually won the Sydney Swans their first premiership in um, so many years. I think it was 80-something years since they'd won it um, and uh, got his team across the line. And, and yes, Ian McMullen, as you mentioned there, Collingwood, Essendon, back to Collingwood. In the 84 elimination final for Collingwood, he managed to kick five goals and uh, led to them getting over the top of uh, Fitzroy in that game. So uh, certainly a game he'll remember for a long, long time. Yeah, a cameo indeed. And we move to the centre line, and it's more recent, as recent as you can get in 2009 grand final, Marlon Pickett for the Tigers. In the centre, Aaron Lord played probably or arguably the best game of his career in the 94 semi-final against Carlton. And Glenn Freeborn, who in the 96 grand final for North, surrounded by players like Carey and Archer and big-name players, made a name for himself in that grand final. So tell us all about it, Wes. Yes, there's some great stories here, Gus. Of course, Marlon Pickett was a great story within himself, obviously, making his debut in the 2019 Grand Final. And, you know, I was there that day, and I know that you all saw it too. And for all intents and purposes, he could easily have been wearing the Norm Smith medal at the end of the day, had it not been perhaps for the reputation of a teammate that uh, seems to catch the attention of all of the commentators <laughs> involved with the Channel 7 coverage. Uh, but obviously, that was a great story. And of course, coming out of Western Australia, so our Sport FM listeners will love to hear about that one. Uh, Aaron Lord, we had him on as a guest earlier this year. He was terrific to listen to. His experience in the 94 semi-final when he was one of a number of relatively inexperienced players brought into the side in place of a trio of big name cats who were missing. And he played an absolute blind of that game and uh, made his mark. Um, and then Glenn Freeborn, of course, who hailed from Adelaide actually was recruited by Melbourne, but played North Mel- for North Melbourne initially, and then went on and played even more games for Collingwood. But it was uh, in the 96 grand final where in the second term, he kicked three goals in the quarter. And it's uh, widely believed that once again, um, a lesser-known player uh, amongst some absolute superstars in the competition uh, played a very, very significant part in that North Melbourne Premiership of 96. That's exactly right, Wes, because Glenn Freeborn, he turned the game because those who can remember, Sydney had North on the ropes and were going into half-time really like just with with a lead that was probably going to be really hard to draw, draw back. And 
Aaron Lord, the three players, you mentioned Geelong had three big outs. They couldn't get any bigger than when you have Bearso, Couch, Hocking, and Mick Mansfield was also missing that day. So driving to the ground, I, I thought we were just going to go through the motions, and that was one of the best Geelong wins I know I've, I've experienced, and many Geelong fans would have. We go to the half-forward line, and for our uh, Geelong faithful out there, uh, look away now, because on the half-forward line, we've got Stewie Jew, current coach of the Gold Coast Suns, um, going back to the 2008 Grand Final. Dermot Brereton, um, who debuted in the final in 82. And Shane Allen, a bit like Glenn Freeborn and E. McMullen. Just one guy you don't expect to pop up in a grand final. And Megan's going to tell us about their exploits. Yeah, I think definitely look away, uh, as you said, Gus. Dermot Brereton, like you mentioned, um, that was his first season. So he had a standout performance with five goals in that match. Um, an absolutely seasoned finals performer. And Stuart Drew, of course, one of his Hawthorne uh, teammates who played much later on, though, in that 2008 grand final against the Cats, which really put us away, came out of retirement for that season and had a famous five minutes in the third quarter with two goals and two score assists to contribute to that infamous win for the Cats supporters. And Shane Allen was a real surprise coming into that match as a defender to replace Tony Modra. Uh, and he came out with five goals at the end of that match, which was just an incredible performance and one which no doubt he would savour for the rest of his career, I would say. No, m- most definitely. And, and Dermot, as we know, debuted in the finals and became, you know, Mr. Finals of the modern era when you think about it. Now, there's a bit more heartbreak too to, to discuss, Megan. We've got Nick Davis in the forward pocket, Mason Cox in 2018, and probably the cameo of all cameos, Teddy Hopkins in the 1970 grand final for Carlton. Yeah, well, Nick Davis, one that I'm sure we'd all like to forget about, but an absolutely sensational performance in that game against the Cats. I think if I'm right, it was four goals in the last quarter to put us away. Yeah, absolutely unbelievable. I've tried to wipe that one from my mind as much as I possibly could. And uh, Mason Cox, he had that standout performance a couple of years ago in the final. He doesn't have them too often, but he seems to like to do them in finals based on uh, his recent final against West Coast as well. So for him, he just has a couple of big games every now and then. And uh, Ted Hopkins, I'm not familiar with him, so I'll throw that one back to you, Gus. Well, I'll let um, one, one of our more senior panel members um, tell us about Teddy Hopkins' claim to fame. Well, Teddy, of course, started on the bench in the 1970 grand final and Carlton were 44 points down at halftime. Ron Barassi made the big change. It was not common practice to bring on a player um, from the reserves bench so early in the game because when players went off in those days, they could, uh, not, be, they could not come back onto the ground. So Barassi took an enormous risk. Hopkins kicked four dynamic crumbing goals in that game to turn the game around. And along with John Nichols and Robert Walls and Alex Jezelinko and Brent Croswell, um, Carlton went on to a 10-point victory, largely attributed to the risk Barassi took and Hopkins's dynamic cameo, which he never repeated again. After a year later, he retired at the end of the 1971 season, a career largely unfulfilled except for the fact that he was the founder of Champion Data, the statistics that we use to cover the game today. Well done. Now, I'll leave the Ruck division open for everybody because Clark Keating was not a cameo for any particular game or series, but I think he was, just, he was a cameo for every time Brisbane made finals. Mm. Anthony Kudafidis, um, Essendon supporters look away now, and Leon Baker. So, guys, tell us a little bit about this trio. Oh, look, I'd, I'd have a go at Leon Baker there, first of all, in the 84 grand final. 
Leon Baker came across to uh, to Victoria and to the AFL with with a great deal of fanfare and and uh, was talked about as uh, as a great player. And I think he he took a fair bit of time to find his feet. But by gee, once he found his feet in the game, he was a uh, a fantastic player. And he was he was one of the big catalysts uh, for Essendon in that uh, in that '84 Grand Final and played a hell of a game and uh, and stamped his card as one of the quality players of the competition. And Anthony Kutafidis, uh, the 1999 preliminary final is the famous game where um, Carlton were at long odds to beat the all-conquering Essendon that day. And Kutafidis played the last quarter, a game, a quarter to remember, still the highest ranked ever in terms of champion data points for a single quarter played by any player. He simply took the game and Essendon apart. And Clark Keating, of course, um, Keating spent most of his AFL seasons injured to miraculously appear fit around finals time and play uh, compelling football in a number of those Brisbane premierships of the early 2000s. A bit like the, uh, the Brad Ottens of his time somewhat, Anthony. Uh... The, the Brad Ottens of 2009 <laughs> who, who emerged from hibernation in September after Correct. spending the winter in a cave somewhere. And uh, with Anthony Kutafidis here in Carlton in 99, that, uh, that preliminary final uh, was also a pretty significant day for two other reasons. One might be completely obvious straight away, but uh, the other one, the, the lesser known one, is that uh, that was the, the uh, exact same uh, day that uh, the Geelong Supercats won their first ever national title in the ABA in uh, Canberra that particular night. And we woke up uh, from uh, from the celebrations the next day to find out that the previous night, that same day as well, that uh, Steve Brax knocked off Jeff Kennett as the, uh, the Premier of Victoria. So not only was Cooter big that day, but there was a couple of other big things that happened as well. Big, the big upsets that day, yes. Yeah. Uh, fair enough, guys. And our coach, even though he's, he's been um, in the coaching, holding the coaching reins of Geelong for the last nine years, is Chris Scott. And we're referring to his first season as, as a cameo. He comes in and uh, wins a flag in his, in his first season. Wes, you obviously remember the season, the day. Tell us a little bit about how you felt when we had the changing of the guard. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because a lot of people are of the opinion that Mark Thompson had really just set the template and everything was in place. All the ducks were lined up, ready to roll. And the Cats could have been coached by anyone to that premiership in 2011. Um, some very wise football pundits have actually expressed those thoughts. Uh, and I am the, of the opinion that obviously Chris Scott has got a lot to offer in the coaching realm. But I do believe that with a, a current finals record of what now five and 12, there's still a bit to be proven. And, uh, and we did hear at the top of the program um, some of Anthony's and, and others' thoughts on Chris Scott has got to offer and uh, we look forward to the way in which that might continue to unfold. Hopefully it continues to improve with two more wins in the coming weeks. Thank you very much, Gus, for your work with Team Talk. Let's quickly go around and get a, uh, a winner and a margin from this week's final. And it's the Cats up against the Brisbane Lions, of course. Uh, we did win by 27 points earlier this year when we played them. So, Anthony? I think uh, I, I still expect Brisbane to win narrowly um, within a goal. Gus? I backed um, Geelong in the first game. I was wrong. I, I backed Collingwood in the second game. I was wrong. I'm going to back Brisbane by 11 points and hope I'm wrong. Megan? Oh, it's so hard to say. I gave us no chance last weekend and I was very clearly wrong. So I'm going to go with the Cats this time. And I'd say between 10 and 20 points. 
and uh, Mark Brunger. Well, Wes Cusworth, I can quite conf- confidently say that only you and I were uh, behind the cats uh, last week as they uh, demolished Collingwood. So once again, I am putting my faith in Chris Scott and the troops to get the job done and make their way to the grand final. Give Patrick Dangerfield his first ever grand final appearance. And I'm tipping the Cats by 17 points. I'm tipping the Cats by 15 points. So a number of us think it's going to be fairly close. We hope you've enjoyed the program this week. This podcast is accessible on a range of podcast platforms along with being heard throughout Perth on Sport FM 91.3. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you can join us for our grand final edition next week.